Number 50 is the song we've been asked to mark. We're delighted to do that, and certainly aren't we thankful to be able to come together on this first day of the week to do that which the New Testament describes as offering an acceptable worship unto our loving and powerful God in heaven. Good to see each and every person that's able to be, to be with us today. Number of ways, that's the title of the lesson of the morning. Perhaps you already would have a wonderment as to what will be the particular approach, or at least the matter we'll be discussing. I hope you have your Bible still open to that text that was read just a moment ago, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and we'll be looking in some detail in just a moment at that, at that set of verses. These introductory remarks, the design of this slide is merely to impress upon us that there are times in our life when numbers are very important. I've just listed a few, and some of these, frankly, aren't nearly as important as many other examples you probably could think of. How many Supreme Court justices does America have? The answer is not eight, nor is it ten. There's a specific number the Constitution has declared nine, and thus that's the number we have. My students at school quite often are pretty interested. Well, how many chapters are on the next exam? Well, the point is, there's a, spe a specific value that is the answer to the question. It is not open over a large range of possibilities. When it comes to a recipe, the number of eggs that are, that are called for, the idea is easy enough. I think each of us are well aware. What's your blood pressure? What's your cholesterol number? The point is those numbers carry meaning and sometimes a very great element of urgency. Today, you and I are going to look at, again, this approach, number of ways in the Word of God. As we do that, this next slide will open that discussion. And I'm going to ask a question that may appear to be so different than what would be a part of a usual sermon. How many ways is there to get to Nashville, Tennessee from here? Now, I suspect many of us probably would think, get in your car, travel down Pippin Road, turn on the Thomas Road, turn left at that point on the 70, get on Tennessee Avenue, and then get on I-40 and travel right to Nashville. Seems easy enough. Probably that'd be the quickest way. But I didn't ask for the quickest way. I said, how many ways are there? And quite frankly, there's almost an unlimited number of answers there. If you wanted a more scenic route, you could just travel 70 all the way to Nashville. Isn't that right? If you wanted an even more scenic one, go to Gainesboro, travel 53 to Carthage, and get on the interstate there. The point is, the number of roadways that one could choose is very, very large. Look at the very next question. Let me change one word. Take the word Nashville out and put heaven in there. How many ways is there to get to heaven? Have you ever thought about that? May I suggest, not only had we better think about it, we'd better have the right answer. If we miss this one, all of eternity is going to be a disaster for us. How many ways is there to get to heaven? You'll notice on that slide, mankind wishes for several answers to that question. There's not the slightest doubt 
the vast majority of the human family wants that answer to be a very big number. Pick whatever way you want to, and we're all going to the same place, aren't we? We're just traveling different roadways. If you and I accept that, we're headed to hell without a doubt. It is not the case that there's an unlimited number of ways to heaven. In fact, you'll note the next matter on the slide simply asks us to note this. The human family, you see, in so many instances, wishes for that answer to be dictated primarily by what I think and by an element in sincerity that I may feel. They don't really want it based on, let's say, a consideration in truth or a consideration in definiteness. They want it to hinge on your perspective. May I again say, how many ways is there to get to heaven? You may notice the next point on the slide. Let's go ahead and put in some matters from the Word of God here just so that we have no misunderstanding about it. There is one way to heaven. There's only one. We know that because of verses like these. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, at this point the church was relatively new, but yet as Peter and John stood so boldly before the authorities, it was Peter who declared, "...neither is there salvation in any other." For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Paul, Peter, what's that? There's not any other name anywhere by which one can expect to gain entrance to heaven. For that reason, you'll notice, Judaism is not the possibility. Judaism isn't founded on Christ. So I cannot be a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, and expect to go to heaven today. Not only that, all the Eastern religions, none of them are founded on Christ. They're founded on Buddha, Confucius, Zoroaster, perhaps one of the Tibetan monks, but they're not founded on Christ, and so they are not the way to heaven. Not only that, did you notice? Jesus said it like this in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. That means, Randy Baby, your personal feelings don't matter at all. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter what you think about it. The gospel of Christ Jesus has been presented. You can take it or leave it, but if you leave it, you'll be lost. It's that simple. There's one way to heaven, only one. That unique traveling, that unique pathway, that unique thoroughfare, if you please, to heaven. Maybe there's one other verse, and you've already noticed it. It's the lesson text of the morning. Jesus, again in the Sermon on the Mount, pointed out, did you note the command in this? He didn't say you may enter in at the straight gate. He said enter in at the straight gate. The subject you is understood. It's a direct command. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for broad is the way, and you and I well know the wideness of that which leads to destruction. But then he went on to say, narrow is the way, straight is the gate that leads to everlasting life, and few there be that find it. Oh, how we want to be among, numbered among the few. 
Oh, how we want to be numbered among that group that aren't traveling the wide way. Because that way to heaven is straight. That way to heaven, again, unique, very narrow. Let's close that slide then and highlight this. That word narrow occurs in a context describing this issue three times in the New Testament. As we look at some of those later, we will be reminded of what it means to be narrow. For right now, I hope we have at least opened up our point of discussion today. The number of ways to heaven, answer is one. Well, let's see what the Bible has furthermore to say about this. Because that one way to heaven is centered around what Jesus had said, I am the way, the truth. What is, what is this truth? No, truth is such a remarkable thing, isn't it? It isn't open to your feelings or mine. It is the way that it is. The one way to heaven. Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9. Didn't Paul say, Though we, or an angel from heaven, should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. As I said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that which you've received, let him be accursed. Oh, what power is in the gospel. Do, we, do you again appreciate with me the uniqueness, the remarkable singleness of it? Paul was even in a position to say, and remember, this is back in the days, long before the modern means of communication. They, of course, had to rely on word of mouth and to rely upon, again, that which was provided differently than today. But if any man brings any other message than this one, let him be accursed. Don't you believe it? Don't you give attention to it? Don't you accept it? And certainly don't you give any endorsement to it. The gospel of Christ Jesus. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed, Paul said, of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Every single person is in need of this because it's the only way the only way that'll take you to heaven. For that reason, you'll notice next on the slide, there's a little verb that Jesus utilized in that text we read a moment ago, and it's easy to pass by it. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate. Now that describes the need to enter, to physically move from one location into another one. The vast denominational world wants it to be hinged on, you believe into it, but it's not what the Lord said. There's actually a physical entering process. You enter in at that narrow gate. For that reason, look at what's next on the slide. This message of the gospel is such a united thing. It is so powerfully presented in ways like Ephesians 2.13. Sometimes you may have heard the following statement. There are those who will try to defend denominationalism and say, we need a variety of churches because everybody's different. We need some that are more stoic, like the Church of Christ. We need others who are more emotionally based, like the Pentecostal. We need others who are more predicated only on what you believe, like Baptists. 
But everybody's different, aren't they? Don't we need a variety of types so that each person can have the expression that most fits that person? Don't you believe that? May none of us ever believe that. In fact, would you turn to Ephesians 2 and let's see how Paul addresses that idea. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 13. To provide a small amount of background to that passage, or at least to to the principles that Paul set forth, he was describing a very issue touching the subject that I've just raised. Again, beginning in that same verse, verse number 12. Paul in writing said, "...that at that time you were without Christ." being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometime were far off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, for to make it Himself of twain one new man." so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God, listen, in one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. In your mind, transition back to the first century for a moment. In the early days of the gospel, what is a problem that seemingly was the backdrop of so many passages in the New Testament? There were those who had come out of Judaism and were Christians, and there were others who had come out of the Gentile world and had become Christians. May I ask, were those peoples different? And to ask that is to answer it. You and I know typically the Jews looked down on the Gentiles, and the Gentiles considered the Jews rather arrogant people, And there really weren't a lot of correspondence between them. If there was ever a time when one could have justified at least two churches, wouldn't that have been it? Why didn't God found a church for the Jews and a different one for the Gentiles and let them both be the church of Christ? He didn't do it then and He won't do it now. They, the text says, were to be in one body, Jews and Gentiles in one body, not two. Today, to think that there are these multiplicities of religious organizations. We need this one because of its emotionalism. We need that one because of its stoicism. We need this one because of its belief structure. That's nonsense. Jesus died to build one church and no more. And the faith that He founded, this gospel of Christ to which we've referred, there is but one faith. Paul said in Ephesians 4, 5, One faith. For that reason, look on the slide at what comes next. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 highlights the incredible unity that's here and oh, how much beauty there is in it. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10 reads, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. At least four ways in that one verse, Paul admonished and demanded that those that would be loyal to Jesus 
must think the same thing without divisions among them. They must be of the same judgment and they must be of the same mind. It is unthinkable that modern day denominationalism could be in consistency with that verse. Absolutely unthinkable. Modern day denominations aren't of the same mind. This one has one plan of salvation and this one has a different one. They think they're going to heaven and they think they are too. But they think that they're not and they think that they're not. Does that sound like they're of the same mind? The answer is obvious. The point is, Jesus never died to establish any denominations. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, one could devote the rest of the day to listing some of the names of these various denominations. But all I've done is list some of the major ones. The Baptist faith. It's really not that surprising that mostly in any community, the largest so-called church will be the Baptist one. It's not hard to understand, is it? I don't have to do anything to be a member of it but believe. And once I'm a member of it, I can never be lost because they believe once I'm saved, I'm always saved. I don't have to do anything. That's why generally the Baptist church will be the biggest one in any community. There's so little commitment involved in it. Quite often, as you think about the Baptist faith, it's not difficult to attach these words. Quite often, they're fond of saying, if you seek it, you can't find it. If you find it, you can't lose it. And if you lose it, you never had it. The Bible doesn't teach any of that. But then there's also the Methodist faith. Typically, the wealthier people will go there because I don't have any demands. I can drink if I want to, and I don't care. God does. Typically, the wealthy will gravitate toward the Methodist doctrine because, again, it fits what lifestyle they want. But it's not the truth of God. Those that are highly emotional will pick the Pentecostal. They can jump down the aisles and claim the Holy Spirit's in them though the Bible doesn't teach it. There is one way to heaven. Jesus died and virtually a tear streamed down His face that men might understand this. The text again in John chapter 20, or rather John 17, verses 20 and 21. Jesus prayed, Father, that they may be one. As thou art in me, and I in thou, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus prayed that all the believers would be one. And as of the moment that I'm now speaking, there is an excess of 40,000 denominations in this world. 40,000. The last I checked, one does not equal 40,000. Jesus said that there's one way to heaven. You and I have to appreciate that truth because the Bible teaches it. You'll notice at the bottom a more commonly occurrent thing that seemingly is so worthy of note. Over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been a veritable explosion of community churches 
We know several of them are right here in Cookfield, and they are expanding at the seams. Because again, so many things aren't connected and attached to the truth of God. So many matters are left loosely. Come when you want, do what you want, believe what you want, and we'll be happy to accept you. But one more time, must we not ask, what did Jesus pray for? What did he die for? The next slide will ask you and I to ponder as I mentioned earlier, the Lord used the word narrow. As I said, the world wants a broad interstate highway that leads to heaven. I want to be able to do what I want, the way I want, and I don't want any demands on me. If I don't want to go to services, I don't want to have to go. But yet the Bible says, don't forsake the assembly. I can't change what the Word of God says. And if I love the Lord, I'll be there, if I possibly can be, every single time. But you see, the world wants much more looseness in it than that. Jesus used the word narrow. On that slide, I've asked you to notice that some other places in the Bible where that word occurs. Do you remember one scene there in Numbers 22? Balaam was riding on his donkey, and here's the time in the Bible when the donkey talked. The donkey, you see, had better vision than Balaam did. He could see that angel standing out there in front, and remember, the passageway was narrow, and he crushed Balaam's foot against the cliff. And Balaam got off and beat the donkey. But isn't it interesting, this place was narrow. The donkey couldn't go just any way he wanted. There was a narrow passageway through the rocks. May I suggest that there's a narrow passageway that leads to heaven. Jesus used the word straight. Straight is the gate. That word straight, S-T-R-A-I-T. You might note the spelling. There's no G in it, and there's no H in it. S-T-R-A-I-T. We sometimes use that word in our modern world, don't we? No ships and captains are rather familiar with it. A ship's captain, as he enters the Mediterranean Sea, must pass through the Strait of Gibraltar. That's spelled the same way. And if you look at a map, you'll understand why. There are rocks jutting out into the Mediterranean Sea, and the entranceway is exceedingly narrow. And quite frankly, if you aren't a skilled shipsman, you could easily crush and damage that ship on the rocks. Straight, you see, doesn't mean easy. It means with difficulty. It means there's danger. It means there are forces at work, and if one isn't terribly mindful and careful, you will not successfully pass through. Jesus said, enter into the straight gate. The roadway to heaven, you see, is a straightened pathway. We'll not be able to do what the world does or we'll never make it. We'll not be able to adopt the perspective of the world that will never please Jesus. I've asked you to notice the other places in the New Testament that were narrow, that were narrow occurs. Luke 13, 24. One more time about the way to heaven. It's narrow. To this point in the lesson, we've then highlighted the uniqueness of that journey to heaven and 
how fantastic it is to ponder God's revelation of it. But there was one part in those opening comments that is deserving of a little more attention. And it's this one. The issue of sincerity. Without a doubt, that is, at least in the mind of many, the critical part in pleasing God. Their mentality is, God doesn't especially care what I do as long as my heart's in it. As long as I really do want to serve Him, then He'll accept whatever I offer Him. Do we believe that? It really doesn't matter whether we believe it. What does the Bible teach about it? Does the Bible teach that sincerity can be a replacement for obedience? As long as I really do believe this, will God be pleased with me? I realize that surely in our better moments, we understand how terrible that logic is. I've asked you to just consider a few examples. You probably could choose a lot of other ones, but consider with me these. A student has just taken an exam at school and made 25 out of 100. But he goes up to the teacher after getting it back and says, I really wanted to do well. My heart was fully in it. Can you give me 75 points of credit? And we all know what the teacher's going to do because that teacher understands it is not in that student's best interest to just pass them on through. Your grade is an F. Please use it to motivate your study. There are right answers and wrong answers, and you did not give the right ones. And I'm not going to give you credit as though you did. Now, you may think that example is awfully contrived. And maybe you are not a teacher. So look at the next one. How would you like to find out that your medical doctor doesn't have a medical degree? Never even attended medical school. And when you ask him about it, he says, Oh, I love you and I want you to be a fine, healthy person and I'm here to do the best I can to help you. Would you let him operate on you? Would you let him diagnose or give you any medicine at all? Just because he says, my heart's in it. Well, we all know the answer to that. I want my medical professional to be skilled and trained and educated and to know what he or she is doing. And I'm not going to accept just the person's feelings of heart as acceptable substitute for knowledge. None of us would. And yet the religious world, somehow, under the illusion, thinks God's this way. Try another one. The next one on the slide. I could have a glass of water sitting right here on this podium and it would look nice and clear. I could have a glass of clear substance right here. Sulfuric acid. It looks just as clear. Not a, it doesn't bubble. doesn't look like there's anything wrong with it. Pick it up and drink it. A few minutes you'll be dead. But why? It looks the same. And furthermore, I was thirsty and I wanted so bad to have a cool, refreshing drink of water. I believed it would be water. Did that make it water? 
I believe that it would be refreshing and nourishing to my body. Did that make it so? The answer is obvious. It's poisonous. And it'll kill me. And no matter what I believe, it won't change the fact it's poison. Sincerity is no substitute for truth. It never has been. It never will be. The way to heaven is unique and narrow. The way to heaven is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must obey it. If we don't, it isn't Jesus' fault. He went to the cross. He made it possible. And He leaves the decision to you and me. If we choose to disobey it, regardless what our thinking may be, we may think we have good reasons for that. It won't change the fact that we're disobeying and that we're going to be judged because of it. There are several times in the Bible when there are those who acted in a way that they thought was right, or at least was acceptable, and it turned out that it wasn't good. I might encourage you to look at Genesis chapter 20 at some point. That was one of those occasions when Abraham told that Sarah was his sister. And he told this to Abimelech, the king. Well, you'll notice Sarah apparently was a beautiful woman. So the, that king went and took and made her a part of, of his harem, or at least brought her into the empire. You see, Abimelech acted what he thought was honestly. She is an unmarried woman. I have every right then to at least invite her to be a part of my life. However, in a dream, it was told him, you've got another man's wife. Abimelech didn't know it because Abraham had lied to him. She really was married, of course, to Abraham. In a dream, God said, If you don't give that man back his wife, I'm going to take the things of your kingdom. I'm going to punish you. Well, needless to say, in the morning, we have to give a lot of credit to this Abimelech. He did not, in fact, make any inroads to Sarah. He quickly gave her back to Abraham. But did you notice, he thought that he was right. But he wasn't. What we think is such that we can be misled. We can be deceived. There are those that can pull the wool over our eyes. But the Bible is true. The Word of God is the truth. Let's close our lesson like this. The number of ways, that's been our title. And the conclusion slide is as simple as this. One way to heaven. Only one. Are you a faithful Christian this Sunday morning? If you have never been baptized into Christ, that's the way you enter in at that narrow gate. Because it's in baptism that your sins are washed away. You need to believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess the greatness of His name as the Son of God and be immersed in water. There's no power per se in the water, but it's in the blood of Jesus that that water contacts. Today, we'd be honored to help you become a Christian. But may I say, if you have become a Christian, and you've known the sweetness of that one way to heaven, but over the course of time, you've begun to think in ways that aren't consistent with the Bible, you've begun to act in ways that aren't consistent with it either, then please realize the urgency of the situation. 
that means you're lost. That means you are not right now such that your name is in the book of life. But there's but one way to heaven. Don't you want to make it right this morning? Don't you want to come back to your first love? Don't you want to appreciate the narrowness of that way and to etch your name one more time into the only book that ultimately matters? If we could help you today by making prayer to God,